The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. We pick up this morning where we left off last week, just as we'll pick up next week where we left off this week. And Last week was an interesting passage of Scripture. This week is also an, an interesting passage of Scripture. It's, it's a, in a lot of ways, an exceedingly interesting passage of Scripture, as will verse 25 as we look at it next week. And they, they can be, these, these passages, I'll just be upfront about it, they can be difficult to understand. Why it is where it is and how it all fits together, both in this particular passage of Scripture, how they fit together and how they fit together in the greater scope of God's Word. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, Lord willing, we'll see it this morning. Now, I want to be clear on something. That when I I make statements like that, that this can be a difficult passage, this can be a hard passage to understand, that the deficiency is not in the scriptures, that the the deficiencies are inside of us. It's, It's not that the scriptures are obtuse or that the scriptures are difficult to understand or if that that God is intentionally confusing. That is not the case. A difficulty is with us, and I, I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the day that I see with, with clear vision and full eyes all of the purposes and the promises of God. Um, that day is, is coming, and by God's grace, through His, His Spirit and careful study, we can get a, a glimpse of that even as we look into the Scriptures today. This is... This is a strange text, and it was a strange text for me as I, as I studied, because of the shift that it seems like Jesus is taking as he moves from a cursed fig tree to a teaching on faith and prayer. It, it feels like there's a, a, a big shift in, in what Jesus is, is saying and what Jesus is Doing, but I do think that that shift maybe isn't as large as it seems, uh, particularly for two reasons. And so this is sort of just serves as an as an introduction and to to understand some of the context that's that's taking place here. If we remember to last week and to the the previous verses, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. He's traveling to Jerusalem. We sort of put this timeline. There's, there's two ways to do it. Um, there's really two options with the, the triumphal entry being on a Sunday or the triumphal entry being on a Monday. For those who put the triumphal entry on a Sunday, then Wednesday, nothing happens. For those who put it on a Monday, then every day something happens. I tend to lean more towards the understanding that the triumphal entry took place on Monday 
Therefore, this day takes place on Wednesday. So Monday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, goes into the temple, sees what's going on, leaves, returns to Bethany. Tuesday comes back to Jerusalem, on the way, sees a fig tree and curses that fig tree because it had no fruit. Then he enters into the temple and cleanses the temple um, of of these uh, Jews who have made it difficult for the Gentiles to come to worship. Return back to Bethany. Now Wednesday has come again, is headed again into Jerusalem. Now this is, a, this is a, an important day in this Passion Week. This singular day takes place through Mark 11, Mark 12, Mark 13. It's all one day filled with the teachings of Jesus. And so this is where we are. Most likely a Wednesday, just two days before Jesus is crucified. So he's cursed this tree on a Tuesday. And we talked last week about how this fig tree was illustrative of Israel. And that is important to understand. And I think one of the reasons why Jesus makes this seeming shift in the text today from a fig tree to faith in God is because this fig tree is illustrative of Israel. And so we pick up this morning as Jesus and his disciples are traveling back to Jerusalem from Bethany and they pass This same fig tree again. This is verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. By way of reminder, this is what Jesus had to say the previous day to this fig tree in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. You see, this particular tree had the appearance of fruitfulness. It was full of leaves, yet it was fruitless. It was fruitless. We talked how this is emblematic of Israel. Outwardly, Israel had the appearance of godliness, but it was all religious exercises Inwardly, there was no fruit. There was no life-giving connection to God. They lacked the most important thing. And so Jesus curses this tree. And now within 24 hours, the tree has withered. And it's withered from the inside out. Scripture tells us it's withered from the roots up. And this is 
the image of Jesus' cursing of Israel because of their rejection of him. Jesus curses Israel. I want to stop just for a second to say that even as we see Jesus cursing Israel because of their rejection, we also see a great picture of his grace. Because even though Israel has rejected him, he is still gracious to them. And even as we have rejected him, he is still gracious to us. This is what we see in the scriptures that there are still, throughout the New Testament, even into today, there are still Jews who are drawn by God to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. This is Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And his people there are the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, the, the people of Abraham. Has God rejected them? And his answer is by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, we still see God in his grace drawing Jews to himself. And we see God in his grace using Jewish men to have the greatest impact on getting the gospel to the nations in the early church than anyone else. And even in the face of the greatest rejection of him possible, the crucifixion of his son. God is still gracious to them. Church, what an amazingly gracious God we serve. Well, Peter sees this tree and he is astonished by it. He's astonished by it. And I think this astonishment is another reason for this seeming shift. Peter sees it. And the, the force of the, of the language is this astonishment. Rabbi, look! The tree that you cursed has withered away. It's withered away. And so here is Jesus's response. And Jesus answered them saying, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. So here's two ways to understand how Jesus goes from a withered tree 
to have faith in God. One way is to understand the flow being Israel being cursed because they lack one thing that led to their rejection of God and their rejection from God that led to their fruitlessness, and that was faith. Right? Israel had all sorts of religious practices, all sorts of religious activity. On the outward, they looked as if they were godly. They were very concerned about things. But on the inside, they lacked the most important thing, faith. And this is what matters most. And we can never forget it. Faith. Church, God is not impressed by your religious devotion. God is not impressed by your religious sacrifices. God is not impressed by your religious activity or your piety or your seriousness. God is concerned about your faith. Your faith. Why was this tree cursed? Because it was fruitless. Why was Israel cursed? Because it was fruitless. Because they lacked the life-giving connection to the God of their fathers by faith. So that's one way to understand this shift of Jesus from look at this tree that's withered to have faith in God. The other way to understand the flow here is by Peter's amazement. Now, isn't it amazing that Peter is still amazed? That he's still amazed that Jesus is able to do these kinds of things. Now, it is true, as we said last week, that this is the only time in the the New Testament recorded for us that there is a destructive miracle um, done by Jesus, right? Everything else, Jesus is, is improving. Everything else, Jesus is making better. But with this fig tree, Jesus is cursing it, and now it has Died. So, so Peter could be astonished by that, but it seems to me that Peter's astonishment is that within 24 hours, this tree has withered to death from its roots up. Because trees don't die that quickly. And so there's this sense in the text of the question of, Why are you so amazed at this, Peter? Do you not think Jesus could do this? You've seen way more miraculous things than this. Peter, you have to have faith. Have faith in God, Peter. Because when you do, things happen. I want to spend some time this morning looking at what Jesus has to say in response to Peter's 
astonishment. And we're going to do that in, in two parts. We'll see two things here. The first is the requirement of faith. And the second is the results of faith. First is the requirement of faith. This is, this is Jesus' response. And Jesus answered them out of their astonishment over this withered tree, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. What is faith? Faith is the commitment to and the surrender of our lives to Jesus Christ. That's faith. The commitment to and the surrender of our lives to Jesus Christ. Faith is not a prayer that you say. Faith is not an aisle that you walk. Faith is a decision where you decide for yourself to commit your life and to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That's faith. Faith in God is saying that He is our only hope. Faith in God is the opposite of self-reliance. But yet we're filled, even in our churches, with sermons on self-reliance. You can do it. Try harder. Do better. And if you do, the best is yet to come for you. Faith is the opposite of self-reliance. Faith is saying, I cannot do it. I commit my life, I surrender my life to the only one who can. Jesus' response is to have faith. There are five things about this faith in this text, in this sentence that... We need to see. And the first is that it is a command. This is an imperative. Jesus is not asking. Jesus is not recommending. Jesus is not saying, oh, how much better your life would be if. No. Jesus is commanding, have faith in God. Do it, he says. It's a command. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is the object of this faith. And that is in God. Have faith in God. There are a lot of people who have a faith in a lot of things. But there's only one kind of faith that counts. And that is a faith in God. Piety does not count. Sincerity does not matter if the object of your faith is wrong. It doesn't matter how sincere you are in your faith. If your faith is not in God. Now that may seem elementary to you. But probably the most well-known living preacher in the world had the opposite to say. And I know Baptist preachers like to jump on on Osteen, but he makes it very easy. A number of years ago, he was on Larry King Live. And Larry King asked him about 
people in, I don't remember the country, uh, the Middle East or Africa or wherever it may be, I don't know. And he said, Larry King asked him, he said, what about these people who have sincere faith in their God? I mean, you, you look at a, a, a Muslim and there is, there's deep, sincere faith in Allah. So what about them? Are you saying they're going to hell? And his answer was, well, I've been there, I've seen their faith, and I know they're sincere. And he wasn't willing to say it. Church, listen. It doesn't matter how sincere you are in your faith. If the object is wrong, the faith is useless. Have faith in God, not your God, not what you think is God, not what you want to be is God, not what you hope is God. Have faith in the one true living God revealed to us most clearly through his word. Have faith in him. Have faith in him. The object of our faith matters. Have faith in God. Listen, our faith isn't effective because of the nature of our faith, because of the strength of our faith or the sincerity of our faith. Our faith is not effective because of that. Faith is effective not because of your nature, but because of God's nature, because he is trustworthy. Because he is able. Because he is powerful. That's why faith in God matters. Because the object of our faith. Because of who God is. Because he is able. And he is trustworthy. Have faith in God. First we see the, the command of our faith. Have it. The object of our faith in God. Three, the exclusivity of our faith. This is all Jesus requires of them. This is it. One singular thing. Have faith in God. Nothing else. It's not have faith in God and. It's have faith in God. One thing is required. Of them, and one thing is required of us, and that is faith in God. The fourth thing we see is the responsibility of our faith, and it's implied here, but it means that you must have faith, that no one else can have faith for you. Your mother's faith, as strong as it may be, does not count for you. Your father's faith does not count for you. Your grandparents' faith does not count for you. The responsibility is on you to have faith in God. And then lastly is the urgency of our faith. This is written in the present tense, meaning right this moment. Have faith in God. 
Because today is the day for salvation. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. This is the requirement of faith. Jesus' singular response, have faith in God. Have faith in God. And then Jesus begins to teach on the results of such a faith. Verses 23 and 24, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and this mountain here is... uh, Absolutely, most likely, the the Mount of Olives, which they would travel over from Bethany to Jerusalem. If anyone would say, says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Church, we must understand this to be hyperbole. Luke tells us that Jesus not only tells them what will take place, but he also shows them how it will all be in fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is Luke 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. You see, the death of Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament not in general terms, not in generalities, but in specifics. And every one of them took place, every single one of them. Jesus tells them that he will be delivered. Jesus knows that it would be at the hands of Judas. They do not know this. This is fulfillment of Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. This is the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. The chief priest is the current high priest. All living past high priests, the captain of the temple, and other people who ruled over the priests. This is the the ruling priests, the chief priests. And the scribes, these are experts, these are the experts in the, the rabbinic and Old Testament laws. This is who Jesus would be handed over to and they would condemn him to to death and eventually hand him over to the Gentiles so that the sentence of death would be fulfilled. Now Jesus has talked about this before, but this time he says they're going to do four things to me. And they will mock him. Could you imagine that just for a moment? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Holy One of Israel, the Creator of all things, the Sustainer of all things, the Sovereign One Himself who has given each and every one of them breath is now mocked by His very creation. They will mock Him. and They will spit on Him. This is the ultimate act of contempt. And they will flog him. A whip with multiple pieces of leather at the end filled with pieces of bone and glass and rock and metal. And they will kill him. 
Jesus doesn't say it here, but they certainly would have understood that this killing would have been by means of crucifixion. Isn't it amazing that Jesus knew exactly what would take place down to the very detail? How? Because he is the son of man. He is the son of man. And knowing what laid ahead of him, he did it voluntarily. Could you imagine this? This one is even more staggering. Not only did he do it with resolute conviction, not only did he do it voluntarily, but he did it for his joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking at Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for his joy. What joy? What joy? How did Jesus find joy? In his humiliation. Now, for a long time, I believed that when it talked about for the joy that was set before him, that what is meant by that is his ultimate glorification. But I'm not convinced of that anymore. Because Jesus existed in eternity past in glorification. So what is this joy? I believe that this joy is a purchased people. A people made righteous. A people from every tribe and tongue. A people for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This this corporate working of God in a people for his joy, for his good pleasure. Therefore, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may become blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of the crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It's a people. It's a people set apart. It's a people made righteous from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. This is his great joy. And Jesus knew after three days he would rise again. Now Mark doesn't tell us any more than that. He ends the exchange there. But Luke records the disciples' response to this. In Luke chapter 18, verse 34, but they understood None of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. I want to read what Philip Ryken says of this in his commentary on Luke 18. The disciples did not understand any of this at the time. 
When Jesus spoke to them about his sufferings, death, and resurrection, they understood none of these things. What Jesus said was perfectly clear, but the disciples did not understand a word of it, perhaps because they thought Jesus could not be taken literally. He said he was going to die and rise again, but the disciples were not ready to understand a suffering, bleeding Savior. How could they? Until they saw Jesus betrayed with a kiss and nailed to a cross. Or how could they understand his ultimate triumph until they looked into the empty tomb or saw Jesus in the glory of his resurrection bodies? The disciples did not understand, but he said it anyway. So that they would when the time came. He also said it so that we would understand. Do you understand what Jesus did in dying on the cross and raising again on the third day? Do you understand as well that he is offering you eternal life in himself? As we come to the text this morning and we see Jesus out in front with his face set to Jerusalem, knowing what lies ahead of him, willingly enduring the shame. Are you filled with amazement and fear? I want to encourage you this week to take time and to stop and to read the gospel accounts of the Holy Week. We'll do this in our family devotion. I want to encourage you to do it in yours to ask God for this not to be just the same old story that you've heard time and time again. But would you, by the grace of God, be filled with amazement of the depth of love he has for us, amazed at the righteousness of God, and fear at how seriously God takes sin, sin, the lengths that he was willing to go to atone for it. Father, would you, by your grace, come show us our great need for a Savior. We are lost in our sins, unable to save ourselves. But you, in the fullness of time, at the exact right moment, you sent your Son to become sin, crushed according to your good pleasure to be an atonement, not for his sin, he was sinless, but for ours. God, may we be filled with amazement and fear. You are holy, you are just, you are righteous. And by your grace, we are made the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Will. This is not that you can do anything. See, I think sometimes we read this and we think, my goodness, look at what we can do. We can ask anything and we can get it. No, the emphasis here is not on what you can do. The emphasis here is on what God does for you. 
That's the scriptures. Look, look. Whoever says of this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said will come to pass. Look, it will be done for him. That means it's God that's doing it, not you. The emphasis is on God. On a trustworthy God and a faith in God. God in his grace. God in his grace hears our prayers and he moves and he answers them according to his sovereign, loving, gracious will. What an amazing God. I want his best more than I want what I think is best. The prayer of faith says that, God, you are trustworthy and I trust your sovereign hand. Would you help me see your will? The prayer of faith is one that understands that God moves, yes, for our good, but ultimately for his glory. Have faith in God. Have faith in God, Jesus says. Because when you have faith in God, God will do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine, Peter. And do you know what we see in the life of Peter? We see God doing incredibly gracious, amazingly powerful things in Peter and through Peter for Peter's good and for our or for his glory and part of those amazing things is his death church these verses are amazing we can read them and we can think how amazing And we start thinking about the, the mountains taken up and thrown into the sea. We start thinking about whatever we ask and believe it'll be done for us. And we, we can think about how amazing that is. But there is one word in these verses that is even more amazing. And it's a word that is irregularly skipped over. And it's a word that I blew right past. But it's even more amazing. It's found in verse 23. And Jesus says, truly... I say to you, whoever. Whoever says to this mountain. Now let's think about the context here for just a second. What was the issue of the previous day? The issue of the previous day was the heart of these Jews that were keeping the Gentiles from coming to the one place where they could engage in the 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 God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. They were keeping them away. They were keeping the nations away because they believed that the Messiah would come and would establish the earthly rule and reign of Israel, not for the Gentiles, but from the Gentiles. And now Jesus says, no, here's the thing. Whoever says to this mountain, Jew or Gentile. 
That this faith in God is available, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile. This faith in God that is exercised in a prayer there where God moves. This experience of the grace and the mercy of God in our life where we know He is with us and we know He hears us and we know He's moving for our good and for our glory is not limited to just one race. It's for whoever. You know why that's amazing? Because it seems to me every single person in this room this morning is a whoever. You're not a Jew. I'm not a Jew. We were outside of the promises of God. But what is Jesus doing in these last days? He is making it clear and he is making the way that God is available for whoever. And you can be a whoever. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the God of creation Stands and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, the nations. Come to me, every tribe, tongue, every language. Come to me. Have faith in me, whoever. You see, the evil one wants us to believe that we're not good enough or we're not smart enough, or we haven't done enough. God would never accept you. He knows the things you did last night. God would never accept you. You've struggled with this. God would never accept you, a divorced man, a divorced woman. God would never accept you, a broken person. God would never accept you. And Jesus says, whoever... Whoever, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever does what? Believes in him. Have faith in God. Come to him. Come in your sin to him and find in Jesus Christ the forgiveness of your sins. That's the only way they can be forgiven. By faith in Jesus Christ. He paid for them on the cross. Why are you still carrying them? Come to him. Have faith in God. And find in him a loving and kind and gracious and trustworthy God. Who is able. Who is willing to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you of your trespasses, to adopt you into his family and to call you son or daughter, whoever. God, what amazing truth from your scriptures this morning. This clear command 
from Jesus to have faith in God. This is what Israel lacked, faith in you. They were full of religious activity and they were full of self-reliance. But they lacked the one thing that mattered most and that was faith in you, God. Would we not be as they were? Would we be people of faith? Faith not in ourselves, faith not in our abilities, faith not in our religious activities, faith not in our knowledge, not in our good works, but a faith exclusively in you. And would that faith be exercised in prayer that knows that you, God, are trustworthy to work and to move to do according to your sovereign will. And God, that by your grace, by your grace, you are working for our good and your glory. God, if there is one today who is outside of your family, who is still in their sin, God, maybe they're trusting in a lot of things. Maybe they're trusting in their upbringing. Maybe they're trusting in a a prayer they said when they were young. Maybe they're, they're trusting in being a good person. Maybe they're trusting in not being as bad as that guy. God, would you by your grace show that faith in those things is of no effect. That the one singular requirement is that we have faith in you. And would they come in humble faith and confession of their sins and need for a Savior? And in doing so, absolutely 100% of the time, no matter who they are, whoever, find grace in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.